This is episode seven of the Uncovered Dish Christian Leadership Podcast. The podcast that uncovers stories, equips leaders, and changes the world. And we are your hosts, Caitlin Deal and James Lee. Featuring plenary and small group sessions led by author, coach, and consultant Susan Balmont, in a special event presented by the Music Paradigm, the 2017 Bishops Clergy Convocation will be held January 23rd to 25th at the Ocean Place Resort in Long Branch, New Jersey. Pastors will experience a life-changing renewal, learning, and fellowship. Be sure to talk to your pastor about Bishop's Convocation and see if he or she is interested in participating. And we hope to see your pastor in the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you all had a marvelous Christmas. We are back in action for 2017 here at the Uncovered Dish podcast. We wanted to start the new year uh, with a new series uh, talking about difficult conversations in the church. I am looking forward to that. That's going to be a rough start. But, you know, I, I kind of grew up uh, with a very healthy understanding, in my opinion, that if there's a difficult conversation, then we should be talking about it in our churches. So that's kind of what this whole series is all about. So get ready, because we are sitting down at the Uncovered Dash podcast, and we're going to talk about it. <laughs> we're going to have a lot of guests on, and we're just going to talk about it. Yeah, uh, just just to be just so you're aware. James is scared right I'm now. I'm <laughs> nervous. I'm kind of scared because uh, some of these t- topics that are coming your way are very difficult, uh, very nerve wracking. But hey, we should be talking about these things. And so, we're gonna have food along the way at the Uncovered Podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm uncovered, getting hungry. Uncovered Podcast. That's the other podcast, Kate. When you keep podcast. saying Uncovered Podcast, Uncovered Dish. Uncovered Dish. Maybe we should just call it Uncovered Podcast. Make is that it right? easier. Copyright. <laughs> I gotta Google it now. Um, so, uh, to start off our series on difficult conversations, we thought it would be appropriate to have Reverend Susan Beaumont. Uh, she is a consultant, author, coach, and spiritual director. She has consulted uh, over a hundred congregations and denominational bodies across the United States and Canada. And I'm very excited that she's going to be our keynote speaker for this upcoming Bishops Clergy Convocation. Uh, Susan, we're very excited to have you. Thank you, James. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. All right. So, uh, Caitlin, do you, did you want to get started? Sure. Um, hi, Caitlin. Hi. So, you know, after reading your blog, um, some of the questions I was getting is, you know, what do you mean by institutional soul and why is that so important? Yeah, I, you know, this this work really began for me a couple of years ago when I was um, examining a, a tension in my work. And the, and the tension was between the spiritual preparation that we do with leaders individually in their own faith lives, um, or sometimes the lack thereof, <laughs> and the intersection of that with the organizational leadership. And noticing over and over in my work that we seem to behave as if these two things are not related. Um, so we, um, we hope that our leaders are spiritually centered people, but then we uh, put them together in a room for decision making, uh, for running the basis of an organization or an institution, and we employ traditional decision making kinds of patterns, which act as if these organizations we lead, these congregations, these middle judicatory bodies, these denominations, we act as if they are soulless entities, that they are purely organizations that are made up of people coming together together. Um, 
to do business kind of work together. And I began really paying attention to those situations in my work where I was noticing leadership groups and individuals tapping into something in the organization that I have come to refer to as the soulfulness of the organization itself, the essence of a divine spark within the organization that um, that is planted there by God. So my work really has a bias, which is or um, kind of an underlying assumption in it that our organizations, our congregations, our um, our conferences are healthiest when we have soulful leaders um, who are are leading from their authentic divine core um, and connecting with that divine seed within the institution itself. And that's when we have vitality. And that's when um, we have organizations that are really equipped for doing ministry. Wow, that sounds uh, that's really interesting. So, where where um, do you see the line between uh, the soul of an institution and the soul, like my soul, an individual soul? So, where where is there? Uh, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this uh, concept of this uh, an institution having a soul, right? I'm, <laughs> right. This is a right. very this is a very new idea. So, um, you know, when I think of a church, I think of you know it's. A bunch of people coming together, but what you're saying is that the church, in and of itself, also has a, a soul. Yeah. So let let's think about it this way. Think about um, the journey of an organization from the time of its founding. In most of the healthy organizations that were part of faith-based organizations, there is some kind of a vocational calling that gives birth to that organization. There's a notion that there's a particular need in an area, um, a particular passion of a set of people, and something unique about the passion of the people coming together with the needs of this context, and a yearning of something being called forth from that. And in many instances, that is probably the purest expression of soul um, Mm -hmm. in the institution that, you know, we start out doing a ministry together and something is called forth where we know that something more permanent is needed Mm -hmm. and the institution is founded. But then the, the organization goes through this spiritual journey of its own. It has seasons of wounding and seasons of pride and seasons of health, and it has glory eras and wounding eras. And that sense of the divine spark in it um, sometimes gets muffled. (laughs) Um, It gets bound by shame. It gets bound up in the stories and the memories of how we talk about our history and our time together and what has happened to this institution over time. And so um, that, that journey of the institution really, you know, the way I think of it is it's a journey of the soul of the institution. And so when you ask, where's there a line? I I don't think about it in that way. I don't think there is a line. I think it's, um, you know, the collective yearning of, um, of our souls with the soul of this organization that's calling something forth in us. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely want to go more into kind of like the uh, the, the crises and the life-changing decisions that, church, that churches have to make. Uh, but before we go into that, I want to go back to what you were talking about, the difference between um, – uh, like spiritual, uh, what is the word? Uh, like spiritual needs and organizational leadership, right? There's this tendency that we have uh, a lot of churches to have kind of a binary thinking. Um, yes. So, but you're saying that should not be the case. Can you tell us more? 
Yeah, well, I think, I mean, first of all, as we run the organizations that we lead, we really do have to do um, a melding or um, uh, we have to do a combination of things that I would call discernment and decision making. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the organizations we're running, they're doing things on timelines. Um, You know, we we can't as leaders just sit around and say, well, we're going to sit here and pray until God makes it abundantly clear to us what we're supposed to do. There probably are moments in the life of an organization when we ought to be saying that. But most of the times we have to figure out we need a budget. (laughs) We have to pay some bills. (laughs) And so there comes a moment when decisions do have to be made. But um, what I'm trying to give voice to is that we, we default to those moments much more frequently than we should. And so um, I think there's a fundamental way of being that we have to step into as leaders if we're going to do soul-tending work in ourselves and in our organizations. And it's, and it's counterintuitive to how most of us lead in a business sense, okay? So um, traditional organizational leadership requires a leader to know lots of things, you have to you have to know how the building works, how the budget works, how um, how your staff team is working together, how to do supervision, all of those kinds of things. Well, soul tending work I think requires a paradigm shift. You have to go from embracing the knowing and moving more into a stance of unknowing, um, which is not about becoming ignorant. <laughs> it's mm. not about unlearning <laughs> skills. You still have to have those skills, but it's about stepping into a place of wonder. It's about moving out of a position of advocating for outcomes that you are determined are correct to moving into a stance of attending where you're listening deeply to what's wanting to emerge um, in and around you in the, in the groups that are meeting and um, in how this organizational um, dynamic is playing itself out around you. And it's moving from a state of striving which is what I see pastors in particular everywhere doing right now. Um, you know, we're in this season of institutional decline and everyone is striving, trying to do more and more of what we've always done to be successful. And in, um, in this deep kind of uh, more contemplative approach to organizational leadership, we have to move out of that striving stance into a surrendering stance where we're honestly yielding to what is around us. This this is our reality. This is what we're facing. And in this moment of unknowing and attending and surrendering, we have the capacity to kind of let go of this tight grip um, so that we can actually um, relax into this state of wonder and pay attention to the movement of the divine within the institution in ways that we can't if we're being um, purely managerial about things. What are do you have any actual stories examples of churches that went from striving which a lot of our churches may be doing to surrendering and seeing the fruits of what uh, comes of that so um, I was working with a congregation who was um, working on a strategic planning process and they were doing really solid work doing all the kinds of things you're supposed to do to create a strategic plan they were studying their uh, the uh, neighborhood and the community around them and how it was changing and they surveyed people and they had listening sessions and all of that was great work. Uh, then they pulled together this leadership body and uh, for a weekend retreat to really learn all of this data and uh, to make some decisions about things. And um, there was just a beautiful moment in the room when um, an individual stood up 
in the midst of all of that decision making and people were working at tables and you could you could feel the angst in the room you could feel the striving in the room as these mm-hmm. leaders were trying to figure out what is, what do we have to do to conquer this next season and um and, and individuals stood up and walked to the front of the room and and simply said we need to stop and pray right now and um, and so there was a moment where everybody just suspended activity and the room went into silence. We spent some time in silence. Uh, we spent some time with the pastor leading prayer. And then we went back to the task. And we went to, back to the task in such a fundamentally different way that a new storyline emerged right there in the midst of us about the congregation's relationship to the community around some changing demographics in ways that turned out to be pretty profound for them in their next chapter. And so that was for that was an example of a really palpable striving to surrender moment. And it's hard to point to congregations that are doing that as a matter of way of life, but we can find lots of examples of moments when we have these kinds of breakthroughs um, where we kind of let go um, of that striving and surrender into the what is that's wanting to emerge. Great. Um, thank you so much. That's awesome. Um, so when I was reading your blog, um, Telling the Soul of the Institution, um, you say it's more than a simple call to prayer, and it's more than a scripture um, on top of a good business practice. Um, you also say it's more than understanding the culture, the spirituality of a congregation, but it requires the basic leadership um, orientations that sometimes go against, you know, like you said, traditional practice of leadership. How would you say um, the leaders the leadership of the church can approach the controversial conversations and decisions that they face today, such as uh, cross-cultural cultural appointments or cross-generational appointments. Um, what would you say that for the leadership of the church um, should do? I've, I've really come up with five ways of talking about the kind of work an organization does that invites a more soulful presence within the institution itself. Oh, yeah. Tell us uh, the five. So, yeah. So, um, and and this is at the at the convocation. This is really what we're going to be focusing on. We're going to be focusing on those kind of three shifts in attention from okay. knowing to knowing, advocating to attending, you know, striving to surrender. We're going to be focusing on that within the leader, but within the body, um, I'm finding that there's kinds of work we can do together that is more soulful work for the institution. And the first category I would talk about is um, cultivating collective wisdom. So. Um, which is, again, is going from this base of uh, being knowledge people, focusing on all the things that we know when I read a great book and this church over here is doing this and so we should try that. And <laughs> that's all knowledge stuff um, to moving into um, a, a place of deeper wisdom, a way of being impacted by the knowledge that's, that is more soulful. Um, and I think that uh, one of the primary ways we have to come at that is really paying attention to some of our um, meeting structures that we use and also the organizational structures that we've put together, that there are some constructs in terms of organizational structure that cultivate wisdom better than what we're doing. You know, as an example, Robert's Rules of Order is a remarkable tool for managing conflict scenarios. It's not a great tool for cultivating wisdom because it really is meant to um, wrestle communication into submission right. <laughs> as opposed to letting something emerge. So, Can so you we're just gonna be clarify talking. the uh, Robert's Rule of Orders for some of our listeners who may not know what that is? 
Yeah, so Robert's Rules of Order is what a lot of us are used to doing in congregational meetings, for example, where somebody makes a motion and somebody seconds it, and um, and, and we limit how, how long people can talk, and you have to vote on the motion, and then you amend the motion, and, um, so, you know, sometimes people get so locked into um, running the meeting well that they're, they're not actually paying attention to what's, what's, what's wanting to emerge there. Um, and so we have to be we have to be careful about the kinds of constructs that we use if we want to cultivate wisdom over knowledge. I think a second body of work has to do with tending the narrative storyline um, of uh, how the organization talks about its history. For example, I worked with a church once um, that that had this real storyline they told themselves about their own scarcity mentality. And they didn't have enough money. They didn't have enough money. That was that was like at the core of everything for them. Is um, you know we're always struggling with the budget here. <laughs> and one of the one of the stories that they that they told, and I heard the story probably in my first hour in that congregation, was about um, how the church had divided about ten years prior, and half the church had gone gone across town, and the church that remained got the good music people, and all the money people went to the other church. Wow. And so this is a story they tell, and it's actually captured in their, you know, institutional documents about, you know, how we got to be who we are. These people of scarcity is they, you know, we have the good music program and they got the money. Well, it was interesting. After I heard this story told like five or six different times, I went to the pastor and I and I encouraged the pastor to kind of go back and do some fact finding around that story. Like what really happened there? And um, when the when the pastor um, kind of dug into that story, um, what what she learned was that it wasn't a church split; it was a church plant. Wow! What? So, uh, so yeah, what? <laughs> so, okay. So uh, a previous pastor had encouraged a core group of leaders to go across town and plant a new congregation that thrived and did very well, and actually became a healthier congregation than the mother church, but there was a core group of people that were unhappy about the decision to plant that church and created this narrative about church split and scarcity. So that's an example of how a story itself damages the soul of the institution. You know, the story that this congregation tells about its past is actually a falsehood, and it's told in such a way that it has this this, this wounding presence in the life of the congregation. So one of the things that we're going to be focusing on at the convocation is inviting leaders who are there to think carefully about the stories that are told within their institutions and what values those stories teach and reinforce and reflect and how those stories either enhance or wound the soulfulness of the institution itself. So mm -hmm. that's a second body of work. Mm -hmm. Um, a third body of work that's important for soul tending is really about getting clarity around our, our vocation as a congregation. So, you know, some we might call this strategic identity. Sometimes I like to call it charism because it helps people to think about this um, in the way that um, – larger institutions think about the soulfulness of an institution is what is our what is our divine work here and it's, it's kind of formed by three overlapping questions who are we who who is this community we serve and what is god calling us to do or become next and when we can find the overlap of those three questions um and live into that overlap um some remarkable things can happen um with 
again, out of the soulfulness of the institution. Um, so a fourth thing, a fourth body of practice uh, that we're going to be talking about is how to deepen discernment within the life of the institution itself. Most of us are... Um, well, those of us who are comfortable with the word discernment often think about it as um, an activity we do ourselves personally with God. I'm looking, I'm trying to discern what God wants from me in right, my right, life. Right. We, and we don't really know how to bring that into a group context. Um, I, I've been amazed at how many different churches I've been in when we've been in a room and everyone's saying, we, well, we need to discern our future together. And someone will come to me afterwards, and this happens with great frequency. <laughs> um, so, so someone um, will come up to me later and say, you know, honestly, I don't know what discernment is. Nobody's ever really taught me what that is and, and how I would do it. So where do we locate discernment in the life of, a, of an institution? Mm -hmm. who, who has the right within a congregation to speak on behalf of God? Is it, is it the pastor? You know, a mosaic figure who goes up the mountain, talks to God, and comes back and tells us the rest rest of us what to do. Is it the council? Does God give the vision for the church to council leaders? Or does God plant um, the future and the vision and the yearning in the life of the institution and the hearts of the minds of the people in the pews? It's a deep theological question. Oh, that's a very difficult question to ask, right? Uh, because now you're talking about the trajectory of a whole church, right? So if it's my own personal life, you know, in my own prayer life, you know, maybe I feel God is calling me, say, in a certain direction. Uh, maybe I make a mistake. It's okay. It's my own life. But then when I think about a church, we feel like there has to be a, a better structure or system over accountability, if you will, right? How do we know what this person is saying is from God or just from his or her own opinion and mind, right? And too often when we get involved in those conversations, what we do is we wrestle it into a vote. So we Very say, often, well, right. you know, yeah. So, well, James, if you think this and I think this and Crystal thinks that, and, you know, we got all these different things, then, um, then we'll have a vote and whatever the most number of people say, that's what we're going to do. That must be discernment. But is it? <laughs> Um, and so we're going to raise some of those questions and talk about that um, at the convocation as well. Mm. You know, what does it mean to dis deepen the discernment muscles of an organization to learn how to do those things? And then the fifth body of work really is about fostering innovation. So that um, how do we help an organization tap into that sense of deep soulfulness in terms of the experiments it takes and the adaptation that it does um, and um, and what does failure have to do with that? And how do we how do we learn to fail with grace and actually learn from our failures um, so that we can prompt more innovation that comes out of that deep soulfulness? So um, so you know th those are the you know five bodies of work: cultivating collective wisdom, tending the narrative, discovering the vocational identity, deepening our discernment practices, and fostering innovation. For me. Um, when I work with organizations and we get kind of cranking on all those levels, that's often when you can feel that sense of soulfulness in the institution emerging and, and leading the organization itself. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm still trying to kind of visualize this. So there are many um, controversial conversations that are going on in our in our churches today. Um, and we're probably going to talk about these uh, 
on, on the podcast more, you know, but we're talking things like, you know, issue of, of, with homosexuality or race and cross-cultural appointments uh, or or even sexism, having clergy uh, that you know, men and women clergy being treated differently. These are very difficult conversations at the conference and denominational level that's going on now. Um so what does it look like as a as a conference, as a denomination, to face these controversial conversations and decisions uh, with discernment? Yeah, I think that this is um, – a lot of this is about strengthening our own um, muscles, our leadership muscles and our capacity around this state of openness and wonder. Because uh, when you think about – uh, when we get in the midst of these of conversations about really controversial issues, um, the, um, the that cynical voice and that fearful voice really start to lock us up, and right. and and we begin advocating for a position because we're certain this is right, and um, and and we stop attending, so we stop being present, we stop really listening because it 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 seems. Like that's too fearful of a thing to do, to really attend to the other when we're afraid that we're going to um, – they're going to open up a crack in our position that we're advocating for. And so so we stay in that knowing stance. We stay in that advocating stance and we stay in that striving stance and then we become polarized. Mm. Um, you know, it becomes about we versus them and we lose the middle ground. Um when we are more intentional about these practices of unknowing and attending and surrendering, and again, we're not giving up our intelligence and we're not giving up all the things we have learned about things, mm. but when we're stepping into this space of saying, I wonder if there there might be another way. I wonder if there's something that I can hear in what the other is saying. Um, it, it really invites us into a much different kind of space. Really... Um, I wish we had a visual right now because I, I want to draw a picture. Uh, but <laughs> the picture I want to draw is like a blobby cloud. You know, okay, a healthy uh, a healthy institution is like a blobby cloud around these really controversial issues. There's space for everybody's um, stance within that. Um, you know, I might I might not really appreciate how you view things or how you think about things, but but we can live in the same blobby cloud because there's a little loop over there that accommodates who you are and there's a loop over here in the cloud that accommodates who I am. Mm. What begins to happen when we get in this knowing and advocating and striving kind of stance is that that fluffy cloud begins to pull apart in this kind of bifurcated way that looks like kind of two round circles with a narrow connecting gap. You know, if you if you think about that, like okay. almost like a dog bone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of oh, the yeah, cloud turns into that, okay? <laughs> uh -huh. And that, um, and and so then we become about this we versus they positions, and all we can do is get in our section of the dog bone and look at the other side and and attack. <laughs> and what begins to happen is that the people who lived in the middle of the cloud, the kind of the moderate voices have a tendency to just step out to the outside and look in and wonder. <laughs> they, they, uh, they're trying to figure out, how can I still be in this thing that has become so polarized? Right. It's become about these camps, and I can't find a position anywhere in it. And, and oftentimes what we need to do in leadership is figure out how to reengage the people in the middle that make the cloud fluffy again. <laughs> right. It's a 
it's a corny kind of a metaphor thing. It works very well. It's, it's a great visual. Yeah. So, so what you know, what do we do as a conference? I really think we we strengthen our muscles around discernment and wisdom, um, so that we can have better conversations, that we can frame more meaningful dialogue um, to look for a different way to emerge, that we pay attention to what is the storyline we're telling ourselves about what's happening right now and how does that compare to this historical narrative and and what does our longstanding vocation as a conference have to say to this? Mm. Uh, I think it is a fundamentally different way of being. So um, I don't know if you know, so our podcast is called the Uncovered Dish Podcast. And we asked, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, that's, so a name. Be, that's a great name. Because we're Mathis and we like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> so we like to come around the table and eat together. So we're the uncovered dish. And we asked all of our guests one last question before we say goodbye. Um, if you can have one dish to choose from, any dish you like to have for the rest of your life, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what would be that ultimate dish that you would want? I feel like I'm supposed to be saying something very theologically significant here. When the first thing that came to my mind was macaroni and cheese, of course. <laughs> That's a, with or without bacon, because oh, a lot of our guests want bacon. So <laughs> I'm not a bacon person. I just love the substantiveness of the macaroni and the creaminess of the cheese. Now, is it homemade mac and cheese? Yeah, and our in our family, my my family has deep Wisconsin roots. <laughs> And um, they're huge Green Bay Packer fans, and so we have a Green Bay Packer macaroni and cheese yes. recipe that we make. <laughs> that is, that's that's the ultimate uh, potluck dish. You might have to share that with us offline. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could tie that into tending the soul. <laughs> you bring oh, the mac and cheese, soul food, right? <laughs> soul food. There we go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, once again, thank you, Susan Beaumont, for coming on the show. Uh, we're, very, we're very excited to meet you in person at Bishop's Clergy Convocation. Uh, for our listeners who have not registered yet, you can still register at gnjumc.org to attend Bishop's Clergy Convocation. That's a month away, actually, and uh, <laughs> uh, at the Ocean Place Resort in uh, Long Branch, New Jersey. So, uh, Susan, we look forward to seeing you then. Great. Thank you both for this Thank time today. So. Today it was fun talking with you. Thank you. All right. Take care now. Bye now. Bye-bye. Do you feel frustrated? Do you feel alone? Do you feel like you're reinventing the wheel every single week? Well, you don't have to anymore by joining a PACE group. PACE groups are peer learning groups. They are unique and intimate small group settings for pastors to collaborate and learn from their peers, helping them to become better pastors with other pastors. Groups are made up of clergy who meet monthly for a period of eight to 10 months to create a purposeful and trusting environment of relationship building where they have the freedom to explore ideas and share experiences. Be sure to register by January 15th at gnjumc.org pace. Unlock your imagination and engage in a pace group today.